Hello, hello, Mez family. It is Hannah Wolf here, as is always the case. I wanted to jump on quick before the show, as always, to say a quick hello. I hope you all are enjoying your weekend thus far. I have such a tremendous conversation to share with you today. My guest this week was Cy Smith. Cy Smith is a singer. She is also a songwriter. She is just a ray of light. She is sunshine in human form. This was such an incredible conversation. She shared with me stories about Al Green growing up in D.C., spending time in New York, touring with Whitney Houston, and so much more. This was such a treat for me. I have been listening to Sai for a very, very, very long time, and this was a real honor to have her on the program to share all of her stories and, and a lot of her wisdom and her joy and her knowledge and experience of being a woman in this business. This conversation was an absolute treat of the highest regard. I sincerely hope you all enjoy. Uh, if you are looking to stay updated on all of the latest happenings, please follow her at Cyberspace on Instagram. That's spelled S-Y- Burr space, B-E-R space, <laughs> S-P-A-C-E at Cy Burr space. Uh, there you can find all of the information about the latest happenings. So please go do that. Please support her. Um, that is really all I have to say. This was an absolute joy for me and I know it will be for you too. So please, ladies and germs, enjoy my conversation with the great Cy Smith. Here we go. We are recording. Cy Smith, welcome to the Mez. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be here today. Awesome. So I want to start this conversation where I start every conversation, which is where, what were some of your first musical memories? Oh, let's see. There's so many, um, but let me tell you about a couple. I remember hearing Cool in the Gang's Jungle Boogie and my aunt had it on a 45. And so I used to listen to that 45 all the time. I, I played that song so much and just listened to every single thing that was happening in that song, every element, um, the horns, the, the deep, crazy voice he was using, you know? <laughs> uh, and I was, I was really in, uh, entranced with that song. Um, and it, I think, that band and that that song and that kind of music went on to play a big part in the music that I went on to make. Um, still on 45s, the first 45 that I bought with my own money was Earth, Wind and Fire, Got to Get You Into My Life. And, uh, <laughs> and I didn't even know that was a Beatles song until I was an adult, like <laughs> I, that, that, and I was so proud of that 45 and I was so proud to go up to the cashier and give her my dollar for this 99 cent, you know, 45. And then I think she, she the total was a dollar four or something like that. And I didn't know what taxes were. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I was, I was probably like six years old, um, so those are two memories that I have. And then one of the first live music experiences that, that really hit me deeply was um, my mom had gotten tickets for us to go see 
Your Arms Too Short to Box with God, this musical. And it was starring Patti LaBelle. And somehow we got front row seats, front and center. And um, I think that was my, maybe my second musical, because I think I saw Fiddler on the Roof before that. But, but this time, at the end of the musical, at the end of the show, there was like a curtain call, you know, and a big song and Patti LaBelle was singing. And she came right over to where we were sitting. And she, she reached from the stage and took my hand and stood me up and sang right to me. And that right there changed my whole life. It was, it was almost like she made me levitate, you know, and, and, I, and I think it was that moment that made me say, that's something I want to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, a, that was a game changer for, for my whole life. Yeah, and what a woman to be inspired by. I mean, wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I know, and I knew even, you know, as a kid that I would never sound like Patti LaBelle or sound like the Shaka Khans and Aretha Franklin's and those voices that I love. Um, but still, it was, the, it was the notion of being able to, to lift a person's spirits and, and sort of change a person's emotions or move a person without you know, putting them in a car and, and locating them somewhere else geographically to be able to move someone's mind. You know, that was an amazing uh, thing to witness and be a part of. And, and, I, and I knew it instantly that that was something I wanted to do. Yeah, that's such a beautiful, beautiful experience. And I, I want to sort of follow that up by asking you, I know you grew, you were born in New York and you grew up in, in DC, two of my favorite cities on the planet. Um, two very artistic places. Um, How did both of those places inform you artistically as a young person? Mm. I mean, you know, I think it's so easy to say, you know, I definitely got my B-girl influences from New York. I spent a lot of time there, even though we moved from New York when I was really young, but my mom had two sisters that still lived up there. And I, and I spent my summers halfway, like half of my summers in New York and the other half in Tennessee. And uh, so I was definitely hanging with my cousins and, and it was hip hop, everything, you know, fat laces, you know, Adidas, all that, you know. <laughs> and then I would come back to DC and everybody would be like, what are you doing? <laughs> you ain't from New York. But, uh, but it was, that whole thing was a, uh, especially to be around at the time of sort of the be- the beginning of hip hop, you know, um, and to come up in that era, you know, where we were literally carrying around boom boxes, you know, to the playground and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, I, I love that. Um, and I, and I think that plays a big part in my music too. <laughs> Uh, in my other life, I was a DJ. Like, so you hear me cutting and scratching with my voice. Like, that's that's definitely something that that um, is in me. Uh, and then DC, of course, you know, any black kid from DC who has any any inkling towards music is gonna play in a go-go band at some point in their lives. Like, it's just something we do, you know. Um, so, uh, growing up on go-go, growing up on Chuck Brown growing up on um, Trouble Funk and Rare Essence and EU and Junkyard, uh, especially Junkyard, because they were children like me, you know, and to see them playing at Children's Museum in DC um, was was also an eye-opening experience because it was like, wow, kids can play too, you know? Uh, 
it, and it wasn't like musical youth that you only saw like on TV. It was like kids right here, you know? Um, so that made music something that was very accessible, you know, to me. And I'm sure other people, you know, from DC probably feel the same way. It, it wasn't something that we only saw, you know, superstars doing. It was something that we could all be a part of, you know? Yeah. Um, and then other things in DC that have nothing to do with music necessarily, you know, just all the museums and all of the, the theaters and, and the scene for culture period um, was something that my mother made sure that I was a part of, you know, and, and, and got to experience. So we were always at museums and we were always going to, um, you know, just any, any kind of gallery thing that was happening, you know, at the Smithsonian and and then I learned to really take advantage of that, you know, as a, as a teenager and as a young adult when I went to Howard, you know, mm-hmm. so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> sure, that's so beautiful. And I think um, what I think is so cool about that is because I know DC as like a punk city, you know. Right. Uh, There's that. And the, the, the DIY aesthetic of that city is something that. Um, I think extends far reacher, extends farther, excuse me, Uh than uh a lot of people think it does, you know, like the scene in DC is so self-sufficient in every, regardless of genre, regardless of, you know, how it looks or whatever, like those people operate on their own. And that's such an amazing thing. Like when you're a young person doing your own thing, there's mm-hmm. something to be said for like seeing other people do it themselves, you know, because that gives you the license to do it too. Absolutely. It, and it really is an amazing thing to see and witness because not many cities really have that. And, and I think for that reason, there are certain scenes in DC and, and, and bands and you go, you know, how come they didn't blow up or how come they didn't blow up? And it's kind of like, well, they did, but it's just local and they don't really have to go anywhere. You know, (laughs) most, you know what I mean? So it's a, it's a very interesting and self-sufficient scene. Um, That's the best word that I've heard used for that. Yeah. And it's so, I just think it's so badass. I really do. It it is. You know, and that's something I want to talk to you too, this idea of like self-sufficiency because you have your own record label, which I think is so badass to be like, (laughs) yes, music making woman in this business that is just backstabbing in so many ways (laughs) I want to ask you about this yeah I I really want to ask you about this because there's so much power in doing your own thing and um can you just talk about the significance of that as a woman in this business Mm. what that means for you yeah you know it's interesting because when I started doing this independently, I wasn't really thinking about it in those terms, you know, like I'm going to be a girl and I'm going to do this and I'm, you know, independent. I really just was, I had been dropped from the label I was signed to. And it took me maybe a year or two before I said, you know, let me pick up the pieces and figure out what I'm going to do, you know, and, and, and I had a few songs lying around and, I was doing these shows in LA and and I never had merch. And I was like, I should have some merch. So I put these songs on a CD and just got the CD manufactured, you know, went over to disc makers and was like, here's some pictures and, you know, here's the credits. Can we just put together a CD and paid for that and printed up a thousand of them. And that was my first EP. It was called One Like Me. And, 
you know, at Bitchcraft, which was the, the venue that I had started to sort of showcase women in the arts here in LA and, and also give myself a place to play, I started selling this EP and they were selling really well. And I was like, dang, I should do this. Like, why haven't I done this before? You know, but there, this was 2001 and there wasn't really a soul independent scene. You know, whenever people talk about independent music, still to this day, soul kind of gets left out of the conversation, you know? So, so there was no network. There was no, there was barely, you know, the internet, <laughs> you know what I mean? There was barely, um, any way to just sort of, I mean, like I had to physically go to record stores and, and say, hey, here's my CD, would you sell this, you know? Um, but that's what I did, you know? Uh, and, 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 it, and I saw that, you know, even though it, the work was kind of grueling in terms of, you know, the tediousness of, of promoting yourself, the reward was that I was promoting myself. <laughs> you know, the reward was that I was promoting my own music and, and people were buying it. And there was a, there was a market for it when all of those years prior to that, I had been told there wasn't. Mm -hmm. And I discovered that there was the people telling me that there wasn't just didn't want me to know, you know? And so, and so I went on to um, do my next album, which was called the cyberspace social. And again, you know, I had it printed up myself and, and did all of that. And, and again, you know, that that album was critically acclaimed and, and I was getting love from outlets. I didn't even know, knew my name, the Boston Globe and, you know, just places. And I was just like, wow, this is amazing. Um, and, and I was sort of part of a scene here in LA uh, of like-minded independent artists, you know, Kim Hill and Medusa and, um, you know, and, and the soul of John Black and, and some other people, you know, who were here doing that and before anybody, you know, uh, and, and, and I think we jump started something and we didn't even know we were doing that. So um, when I look back at it, I'm like, I'm so glad to have been a part of that sort of frontier, you know, line of people that kind of broke open the doors for other artists to see that there, it could be done, you yeah. know. Oh, for yeah. sure. Yeah. 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 And I want to so, ask you specifically like about that period of time in music because people listen to the show know I listen to everything. The Neo Soul movement is like one of my favorite periods of time, particularly in the early 2000s. Um, and I really want to sort of talk about it generally because there was such an outpouring of creativity from all over the country, places like New York and LA. And I mean, mm -hmm. it, it was just enormous, the amount of records that were coming out that were like groundbreaking, earth-shaking records. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about really what that was like to be a part of this movement in music that was, you know, shaking up the gumball machine in a really big way at that time? Yeah, it was, um, it was an amazing scene uh, to, to, to physically be in, you know, uh, to the, I mean, there was a, a network of sort of venues, you know, the Temple Bar was a main one, uh, shout out to the Temple Bar and the Temple Bar family, but they really gave a platform to artists like myself, um, you know, the, the Jay Davies, the, you know, the, the, who else was out here doing it? Like, um, oh gosh, I'm, I'm, I'm not remembering 
names of people, forgive me. I can, I can name people in DC though. There was Wes Felton and Urban Avenue 31 and, and Raheem Devon before he got signed and uh, Kay Allen and, and Yazara and you know, all of these people, the foreign exchange, every, there, was, there were things popping up you know, all over the country, uh, springboarding, you know, almost simul simultaneously, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and we were the ones who weren't necessarily getting radio play, but we were getting tickets sold, you know, we were getting bodies into venues, and we were getting uh, attention that the mainstream didn't know really what to do with, you know. And, and then some some of us were even getting things like Grammy nominations, you know, like the foreign exchange and, and you know, um, a record I did with uh, Michelle and Deggio Cello uh, that was nominated for a Grammy back then. It, 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 some of us were even getting that kind of recognition. And <clears throat> I, and I think it was a, a turning point, you know, for the powers that be in music yeah. who are really slow to yeah. make any changes <laughs> and so it so it was a turning point but that shift still took years for them to finally come around to checking out you know the Thundercats and the you know and 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 I and I say that even though you know Stone's Throw and all those labels are still like kind of boutique places I'm saying that the the Coachellas of the world you know yeah may not have taken a look at these kinds of artists had we not laid that foundation, you know. And on that, yeah. Yeah, sure. you know, so it, it's an amazing thing to have been a part of and, and, and to see what came out of it, you know, to yeah. see the garden, the garden that grew, you know. Yeah, so beautiful. And one thing I wanna ask you about too, about that time that I love personally is the amount of collaborations that were going on meant, to, was to me something that was so unique to that period of time, like the spirit of wanting to work with other people. I think, you know, this idea of like, um, you know, it was a very self, it felt very selfless in a lot of mm -hmm. ways, you know, just wanting to make something great that people enjoyed. Um, can you talk about that um, in any particular way and maybe how that sort of impacted the music you were making at that time? Absolutely, and it and it it very much was a selfless sort of thing that was happening. I I remember when uh, I was working a lot with Ali Shahid Muhammad um, at the time, <clears throat> and he introduced me to a producer. He was like, "You got to meet this producer," and this was in New York. He he took me to this event called Beat Society, and was like, "You got to meet this producer from the Netherlands. His name is Nicolay." And so. Uh, we went to Beat Society and and all these different producers were on stage making beats. And I think Talib Kweli was there that night freestyling and, and it was really dope. And after the show, I went up and met Nicolay and he was super, super sweet and super tall. And, and, and he was like, I'm your biggest fan in the Netherlands. I'm like, you're my biggest fan anywhere. Look at you. <laughs> and, and, and he was like, I, I'd love to send you some music and, you know, maybe we could write. And he sent me a track and, uh, and I knew that it was something that I couldn't just write anything to, you know. I was like, this this track is special. So I, I think I was reading my horoscope and and I loved the way the horoscope was kind of flowing. And I was like, I should make this a song. <laughs> and and so I kind of took the lines of the horoscope and you know, took every other one and kind of made it rhyme and edited here and there, made it, and I put it and I sang it to that track he sent me. 
and it turned out to be the song called Aquarius Rising. Mm -hmm. And um, and that ended up on my cyberspace social album. But I think I wrote that song in 2003 or four. Mm -hmm. And yeah, probably 2003. And, um, and, and yeah, and that's kind of what happened. Like, that's how it was. Like people were sending, this was the beginning, I think, of that, that type of collaboration where people were like emailing beats, you know, it's totally normal now. But back then, this was like, uh, some pioneering shit, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry, I probably don't. You can nope. Say whatever you want. <laughs> but you know, this was this was some definitely some pioneering type stuff, you know. And 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 now, you know, like everybody does it. But but back then, I think, yeah, this was this was the beginning of that kind of selfless collaboration, and 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 also where people could see the the possibilities you know, of the things we could do, even if we weren't in the same room. Yeah. You know, even if we weren't in the same country, you know, he hadn't even moved here yet, you know. Um, and, and, I, and I think he and Fonte actually did that whole first foreign exchange record like that. Like, I don't even think they had met in person, you know, and they did a whole album like that. So yeah, it was a beautiful thing to see that kind of, um, those kinds of collaborations jumping off. Yeah. yeah. And there's something so pure about that and and so like just for the love of doing it you know there's no it didn't it, to me that sounds like there's no desire to be famous there's no right. desire for celebrity it's just let's make something that we are passionate about that we care about um i want to backtrack just a little bit because i'm curious about how this may have influenced you you mentioned that you went to howard university Go bison mm -hmm. h u um, yes <laughs> so i think it's super interesting that you studied psychology and music therapy um yeah talk about how learning about how music affects our brains and the way we think and the way that it affects us from like a scientific perspective mm. how that influenced the way that you make music as an artist and i'm wondering mm. if you notice a difference in how you perhaps maybe internalize music having all mm. in your head. You know, I know that there are all types of studies that go into like the frequencies and, and, and notes and particular chords and particular progressions, you know, um, and, and repetition of notes and compared to uh, a, an accidental thrown in. Like there are so many different studies that, that, that touch upon all of this. Um, and, and to a degree, I think that the way songwriters kind of approach songwriting you know the sh just in terms of structure you know there is some psychology involved in that like we all we all aim to write a great hook you know mm -hmm. because you know psychologically if somebody can remember a great hook and sing along to it they, they'll want to hear it again um but I don't know that I am super 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 intentionally using mm -hmm. psychology when I write um, any more than anybody else's. Like the only difference is I study psychology and I kind of know some terminology, you know, <laughs> but I don't know that I am intentionally like as of yet, I don't know that I'm intentionally, you know, seeking to do something, you know, by utilizing a tool in music such as, you know, 441 as compared to 440 or something like that, you know, 
um, or, you know, 100 beats per minute as opposed to 97, you know, like, I think I'm just writing what's in me to write, and then tweaking to make it what I hope to be a good song, you know. Yeah. Um, Now, sometimes, sometimes, I might in vocal arrangements do certain things to bring about like a subconscious. Should I even tell you this? <laughs> like, to, to, to bring about like some a subconscious sort of um, ingestion mm-hmm. of a song, you know, like so I might do a whisper track under some of my other singing tracks just to emphasize a line. You know, uh, so that might be a little bit of, you know, psychological um, uh, twiddling, <laughs> you know, but, you know, and, and even sometimes, <clears throat> even sometimes the things that I might leave out, like, you know, if you're an arranger, you can hear all these different notes, you know, but sometimes I leave notes out of the arrangement to give the listener a place to fill in a note, you right. know. Like, let's, let's not sing every harmony that we hear because the listener might want to sing a harmony too. And, and that makes them feel like they're a part of building the song, you know? So there might be places where you only hear two, two notes from me, you know, in terms of the stack. And, and I've done that intentionally because I feel like either one, I don't need all them harmonies or two, let me leave something for the listener to do. That's so beautiful. And something I'm curious about that I just thought of is this idea that music is both like a quote unquote makeshift therapeutic tool for a lot of people you know Mm -hmm. if you're sad you'll listen to songs that either make it worse and get it out of you or better you know but it's also this thing that can be used to help people in a you know and if you go see a person who does this for a living you know I had a lot of friends at Berkeley that were in the music therapy program and I know from their experience, it gave them a whole new appreciation for the power that music has in the way that it's that it affects us. Right. So I'm curious if you sort of feel any bit of that, and if you see a difference between using it as an actual therapeutic device, like if you were working mm-hmm. with a patient versus mm-hmm. playing a song and and having a person come up to you afterwards, being like, "Oh, I was having a really hard day," and and that made it really, you know, that made it better. Right. Yeah. I mean. I definitely see a difference between the two things because in a therapeutic setting, you know, uh, a music therapist is using the music to bring about a very specific um, behavioral change, you know, whereas when we're listening to music to feel better, it's not necessarily a specific change in our behavior we're, lo- we're looking to make. We just want to change in our attitude. We just want to feel better, you know, right. or we want some music that is congruent with, uh, you know, the sadness we're feeling. If we broke up, you know, we might not want to hear let's go crazy. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we might want to hear the beautiful ones instead, you know, because we want something that we want something that's a part of our misery. <laughs> you know, it, it really just, depends but in but in a therapeutic in a therapeutic setting you know it's definitely more clinical you know we're doing a b and c with the song and with an instrument and with our patient to bring about different changes that they can take into their everyday lives right. you know yeah absolutely and i want to sort of expand on this idea of emotion cuz i think you know we're in the middle of a pandemic 
right now and it's hard to feel good emotions at this <laughs> point in time. Um, but one thing that I'm super inspired by that you seem to do a lot is celebrate being joyful. And I want to talk to you about this because I think it's so awesome that you're so open about that. Cause I think for so many of us, I know for me, you know, I struggle with anxiety and depression that this has been really, really hard. And there are days yeah. harder than most. And I'm curious to know just right now, can you talk of, talk about how you find something joyful in every day? You know, I thank you for that. First of all, um, I've been really intentionally doing this lately because I needed it, you know, um, I have struggled with depression too. And, you know, and, and I've had therapy and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's been something that I've been dealing with for many years. Um, and as of late, you know, I've been fine, but being fine doesn't necessarily mean being okay. Right. You know? know and exactly. so, yeah. And, and, <clears throat> and it's so easy to get caught up nowadays because we, you know, we wake up and scroll and, 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 you know, we're immediately bombarded with all kinds of information and all kinds of news and all kinds of attitudes and all kinds of moods. And if we're not careful about being intentional with how we want to feel, we can get sucked into that sort of vortex very easily. So I decided last year um, that I really wanted to inject some positivity uh, and optimism going into 2021. And I was like, I can't inject it if I'm not living it. <laughs> so it starts with me. So that's why I've been on this sort of choose joy path and, and not just choose joy, like, you know, wake up and be happy, but that means, uh, and here's my psychology background. That means choosing actual behaviors and actions that make you happy you know, um, and, and then looking at those things and making sure those aren't self-destructive things at the same time, or, or, you know, making sure you're not covering up, you know, like sometimes, sometimes for me, my, my joyful thing that I think is joyful is eating a whole box of donuts, but is that really, <laughs> is that really good for you? So, so making sure that my, thing that I'm choosing to make myself happy isn't something that's that's making me worse you know yeah. um so so that so the happy is not just an immediate gratification but a, a long serving thing that I can do you know to 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 be to be happy you know that day and that week and that month you know so that's what that's all about and I'm, I'm so glad you're you're into it thank you oh for sure oh my god I like I studied happiness and I took a class in high school on the science of well-being and it was one of the most transformative educational experiences of my life because when I was introduced to this concept of like long-term sustainable happiness mm -hmm. and the difference between like owning a possession and like having an experience and how uh -huh. those affect the way that your brain perceives happiness mm -hmm. was like a mind blowing thing to me. And um, from that point on, I've always tried to do something similar to you where, you know, mm -hmm. actually be, you know, conscious about doing something that makes you feel better, whether it's right. or makes, you know, allows you to take a breath or whatever it is. Right. Know? there is science to that. And, and I think that that's, I think it's so beautiful. And, and that leads me into this sort of other area 
of, you know, you've been sharing your running journey on your Instagram. <laughs> and um, I'm a runner. I've been running for a long time. Wow. I was supposed to run a marathon in 2020, but the world. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, is that, has that sort of been a part of this choose joy, feel good um, sort of experience for you? It totally has. And, um, and I'm, I'm so glad you asked about it because this is a new thing for me. Mm. And, and I think a lot of times when we're thinking about joy, we think about the things that we already know. And we don't often things, think about things that we haven't done before. And I think that there is a lot of joy to be found in discovery. So sometimes choosing joy means taking a chance and doing something you've never done before to see how that might bring you, you know, see how that might make you feel. Um, so running was something I've never done and I've, I've never been an athlete and, and all last year, you know, the pandemic has given us time. <laughs> so I've been, you know, I've been exercising more and, and, and learning that new habit of waking up and working out. And, and I've found that that has make, made me happy um, just because my body feels better physiologically, but I decided to start running because I've, I've always been curious about it um, and I've never been able to do it. Like I've never been able to just run down two blocks without huffing and puffing, you know, <laughs> it sounded like a steam train at the end of it, you know? So, so I wanted to challenge myself to just, you know, run a mile and see if you can do it, you know? And, and I think that was back in June, maybe that I did that for the first time in my life, you know? And and, and then I, you know, downloaded an app and just tried to make it sort of a regular thing. And I don't think I really got regular, you know, at it, um, practicing until about October. Mm. And, and I found that, yeah, this is something that's bringing me joy. And it was, it was completely unexpected. Um, and I'm so glad to discover it because it means that one, there's a new thing I can do to, to make me happy. And two, there's probably a whole bunch of other new things I can do too, you know? So, uh, so I'm hoping that, um, that message is getting out there to, to folks, um, who see me. It's, it's not really just about being able to look cute in my gowns when the world opens back up. <laughs> it, it's about, about challenging yourself. For me, it's about challenging myself to do something that I never could do, discovering I could do it, and discovering that it really makes me feel good, you know? So yeah. I just hope to get, you know, keep doing it and get, get better and better at it. And it's a, it's a slow process, you know? Um, I'm not gonna be, you know, Flojo or, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not gonna be that, but, but I'm gonna be, you know, the best I can be. And, and that feels really good. And that's awesome. And that's the, to me, that's the whole, the whole deal. You know, I, the group that I was running with was, um, at least for the Boston Marathon training was for a, um, a group called Back on My Feet, which was mm. which folks who were experiencing homelessness and um, mm. a lot of whom are in recovery. And the, the idea is that wow. they all run together and over if they are consistent, like if they start their membership, uh -huh. they show up to the meetings. I think it's like 90% for the first month they get access to housing information and job training and all of these. Wow. Chapters. Yes. They, I believe they have chapters in LA. If that's something you're interested, I'm more than happy to send the information your okay. way. 
Um, but that running in that environment with people who, as you like us, are not athletes, <laughs> they're doing it for the community and for mm-hmm. the that feel good element to do something yeah. that's themselves, you know, that's in our control, you know, there's something so beautiful and so powerful about that. And um, I'm definitely hearing that message for sure. And I know <laughs> for a fact that other people are too, because it's like, you know, I think athletics is this thing that is challenging for folks who are not like already in that universe, you know, right. like right. you're an artsy kid. And so sports, <laughs> like not my thing, you know, and right, so- right. To discover that we all have that within us, I think is so, so powerful. And to switch gears just a, a smidgen, um, okay. of all the things that I think could bring a person joy, singing a song with Al Green might bring <laughs> a lot of joy. Um, I know that would rank high on my list. <laughs> joyful. Um, Al Green holds a really special place in my heart. And I'm curious to know just what that experience was like for you. I mean, well, uh, are you talking about the soul food um, yeah. theme song? So the soul food theme song, I recorded that without him being there. Like his vocals were already there. Um, Babyface had written the song. Al Green had performed it for like the first two seasons of soul food. And then I think it was season three. I don't know if it was season two or season three where they revamped it and, and brought me in, but he wasn't there. But I did have the chance to sing with him on a show called Ally McBeal back yep. in the day and, and a few times actually. And that was amazing because he is, I mean, he is on another level altogether, just mm-hmm. spiritually. There was, there was a moment where we were all in the bar scene, uh, Vonda, Al Green, uh, me and the other two ladies who, who sang, um, that's, I think that was Renee Goldsberry from Hamilton and uh, Vitrina King. We were all three there and the Reverend Al Green, he said, like the whole room, like I'm talking about camera guys, gaffers, electricians, you know, the props people, the extras, everybody was in there. And Al Green said something. He didn't even raise his voice. He was just like, you know, And we all looked at him and there was kind of, the room got a little bit quiet and we felt it. He didn't say anything else. And then he was just like, yeah. (laughs) And we were all like, wow, that was crazy. Because he didn't even even say anything. He just said, you know, and we all looked and felt whatever that was, that energy, and, and we got it. And we received it and it was just, yeah, that was, that was it. (laughs) That was it. So yeah, uh, uh, working with him was a beautiful experience. And I want to say we did maybe two or three episodes with him and it was, yeah, he was, he's, he is a beautiful human being. What a, what an amazing and connected man. He's, he's connected to something so much bigger than us. I mean, you know, Oh my God. Yeah. That's such a beautiful <laughs> way to put it. Cause some, I know for me, you know, some of my favorite musical moments have Al Green songs on the playlist for sure. Um, and something I'm curious about is, you know, you've had really incredible experiences working with folks like Raphael Sadiq. Oh yeah. My favorite singers. Um, you toured extensively with Whitney Houston. Um, 
what that experience to me feels like something that it's sort of like touring with like a Madonna or a Rolling Stones or, a, you know, oh, yeah. anybody out of a hat. Like that is the top of the food chain, you know? Absolutely. Um, can, can you talk about some of the things you learned from that experience? Because so few yeah. end up on a level like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, first of all, let me just backtrack. Raphael Sadiq, he's one of my favorites. I love him so much. I've had the honor and pleasure of working with him a few times. Um, and uh, like I've done some some demos for him for some other work that he's done. And, and then when he was producing John Legend's Christmas album, uh, me and uh, Rihanna Lee and uh, uh, Levance Kali, uh, the three of us sang backgrounds on that album. And, and I got to do some vocal arranging on that record too. So I got some vocal arrangement credits on John Legend's Christmas album, which went on to you know earn a couple Grammy nominations. So yay. Um, yeah, right? <laughs> um, but the Whitney Houston gig, um, it was amazing because like you said, it's the top of the food chain. And that means that everybody there is top of the food chain. So every musician in that band, every person working the tour, you know, tour staff, uh, all the techs, all of the, you know, just every single person is top of the food chain. And, and to be around that level of excellence, and I was so young, Hannah, I was like 23, you know, and my first show, you know, was live on HBO at Constitution Hall in my hometown, you know, <laughs> that was my first show with Whitney Houston, and I'm singing soprano, you know, and I ain't nowhere to hide, you know, <laughs> we don't, we don't sing, we weren't singing with tracks, you know, there was no Pro Tools, it was just the three of us, Charlotte Gibson, Patty Howard, and myself, you know, and, um, and, you know, we, she did a tribute to, this was classic Whitney. She did a tribute to Aretha Franklin in this show. Um, and so she did Ain't No Way. And Whitney Houston's mother, Sissy Houston, sang the soprano on Ain't No Way. So, so Miss Sissy Houston is right there, you know, telling me how to do this part, you know. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, so, so, so the, everything was just so surreal, you know, to get one-on-one -on -one coaching from the woman who sang it originally on the album that we all know, you know, and, and to sing it with Whitney Houston and, and to have, you know, Ricky Minor as, as the MD and, and all of those guys that I grew up listening to, Paul Jackson Jr. on guitar and Kirk Whalem on saxophone and just, you know, Bashiri Johnson on percussion, just all of these people whose names I had up until that point only seen in credits, you know, on, on album credits. To be in a band with them and to be playing with them and to be in my hometown at Constitution Hall with my mom and daddy in the audience, like it was just, it was amazing. And, and to go on and, and tour with her and see the world, um, not to mention it's her, you know, yeah. So to, to, to see her in an excellent form, you know, for that show and, and for so many other shows after that, you know, when we, when we were touring Europe, it was just an amazing experience. And, and, and at the time, to be quite honest with you, I was so young and, you know, like I was such a B-girl, you know, growing up, like I wasn't the girl that stood in the mirror with a brush and was singing and wanted to, so, so I didn't really, no, I was kind of oblivious to what I was experiencing at the time, 
it was in retrospect that I said, wow, mm-hmm. you know, but at the time I was like, wu tang out, you know, <laughs> and like, you know what I mean? Like, I, I was like, uh, it's, it's cool. I'm here. I appreciate it. I knew my parts. I knew what to do. I was, you know, I was about it, about it. But it wasn't until I stepped out of that, that I could look back into it and go, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. I imagine it felt kind of, because I've had certain experiences like this where you kind of don't feel in yourself, you know, for part of it. You kind of yeah. feel like you're looking over the experience in a way and you're absolutely right you sometimes you do need some time away to be like holy shit I just did that right right and and it was probably for the better that that I was a little oblivious like that because um I think to be so young and green allowed me to to you know how a baby is you know they just kind of do things without thinking they they fall down they get up and they, they you know they're not embarrassed you know so it, I think it allowed me that sort of freedom to be able to do my best without worrying about uh, what someone who was way aware would would be worrying about you yeah know? For sure for sure yeah. and something I'm yeah. curious about too is this idea like you know Whitney Houston was one of the voices that I remember hearing really as a young kid you know my mom used to make an effort to play for my sister and I like female singers you know and right female voices so that we understood that like girls had a seat at the table too right right um Whitney her voice is so like implanted in my head you know Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. to see a woman so powerfully herself up there like that had to have been inspiring on a level that like I can't even imagine absolutely inspiring there were uh, you know especially as a black girl you know to there were a couple of women that for me like just represented a a type of um, a type of image that I that I didn't get to see that often you know Cicely Tyson was one Diana Ross was another um, you know, dark-skinned Black women who were just able to be in places where we were normally shunned, you know, and then later, um, Whitney Houston was another one, like, you know, just, she broke down so many barriers, but, but she also made it so that, like, we could see ourselves, you know, in places where we normally, you know, got laughed out of the, the room, you know, for even imagining, like, I want to be a princess. What? <laughs> Get out of here, girl. <laughs> like, but she, you know, she made those things possible, you know, and like Cinderella, when she and Brandy did that, like that was unheard of. Yeah. And to think, you know, 19, what was that? Like 97, 96, 98, it was around that time, right? To think that it took that long for something like that to happen, you know, we're still in 2020 and you know, what you call him? What's her name? Hallie from Chloe. And- yep. Yeah. Like playing Ariel. Like we're still doing firsts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's 2020. So we, we've got a long way to go, but Whitney Houston was definitely one of those, um, one of those people who made it possible for us to see ourselves in places where we normally weren't seen. Yeah, and that's so beautiful. And, and thank you so much for, for sharing that. I, I know for a fact that there are so many people who are going to listen to this who 
who feel that and feel it so intensely right now. Uh, yeah. You know? and, um, yeah. There's something, you know, I, I think one of the beautiful things, at least that I'm seeing in, in this day and age, you know, in the arts community is people taking matters into their own hands and, and making stuff that they want to make the way that they want to make it and putting their own stamp on it in a way that yes. I think at least I haven't seen before, you know, mm -hmm. this, you know, to go back to this conversation of doing do it yourself that we were having earlier, there's a lot of power and, and pride in that in doing your own thing. Um, yeah. One has to learn that from somewhere. Yeah. And I'm curious to know where did that spirit come from in your life to do, uh, do things yourself? Um, definitely. I mean, my first teacher, my mother, my mother, um, Serena Gilbert, she's, I, I gotta say, my mom is such an independent person um, and, and watching her, she, she's a single mother. She raised me. I mean, I had a village raising me, you know, <clears throat> but my mom and dad weren't together, even though he played a, a significant role in my life, still does. Shout out to Cy Smith. That's my dad's name, Cy, Cy Smith. Um, but my mom, uh, you know, she was just, and still is such a go-getter and such a, you know, she was one of those people who always told me if I couldn't do something like to figure it out. And, and she kind of gave me the resources to figure things out. Um, but it was always like, don't come to me crying about something if you haven't tried to fix it first, you know? Mm. And, it, you know, like, don't, don't come to me with something if you haven't tried to find the solution first. If you've tried to find the solution, then come to me. But first, you got to try to fix it. And that's really what taught me, you know, how, how to be sort of that independent pioneering, I guess, kind of spirit. And, and, and she comes from people who were like that. Like my whole family on my mother's side, we come from a place called Promised Land, Tennessee. And basically after the Civil War, my forefathers went back to the places where they were enslaved, where they had been enslaved. Um, they came back with their money that they got from fighting with the Union Army and they bought the land that they had once been enslaved on and built a whole community. And, and to this day, the one room school still stands, you wow. know, the one room schoolhouse that they went to and that my you know, grandparents went to, my mother went to, you know, Promised Land School is still there, Promised Land Church is still there. And, and I grew up seeing that tiny little community, even though I think by the 60s, a lot of the people had moved out in a way. This is like maybe about a 45 minute drive from Nashville. Um, but, but I knew that my folks had come from a place that they built themselves, you know? So I think it kind of helps to know your family history too, you know? I think that's why history is so important, you know? Not just big history, but like our own family history. I think it's so important that we know that, you know? Yeah, for sure. That's so yeah. beautiful. And that's so, what a, what a, um, I don't want to use the word inspiring too much because I think sometimes it okay. can feel a little reductive for certain right. Um, yeah. But for lack of a better word, what a motivating environment to know that your family came from. I mean, this idea, like, right. I can imagine like being a kid and thinking, well, now anything is possible, you know? Right. Like totally. that's so incredibly powerful to a young person, you know, cause at yeah. least my generation, you know, 
we, <laughs> you know, it's, it's really hard to be a young, hopeful person right now. Yeah. And, um, to, to, to grow up in that sort of a, a spirit and that kind of a mentality um, is something that is just so awe-inspiring to me. Cause it's like, well, no, okay. Now every, the, no more excuses. No more excuses. <laughs> we can do anything. We can do anything if we put our anything. mind. Absolutely. Yeah. I, and I know it's hard. It's definitely hard to, um, man, it's, it's definitely hard to, to, to have some hope, you know, cause it's been, it's been a, not just a crazy year, but the last few years have been really, really hard, you know, for, for all of us. Um, but especially for young people, like, I can't imagine trying to start my life right now, you know, <laughs> like this, it's just really crazy. But, um, but I think about stories like, like the one I just told you and uh, on my father's side too, my father's mother, Ida Van Smith, she was a, a public school teacher in New York city for like 20 years before she decided that she wanted to learn how to fly planes. Wow. She was 50. And she decided to, she went over to LaGuardia airport and took a flying lesson and then was like, yeah, I want to do this and retired and went back to her home state of North Carolina and enrolled in aviation school and learned how to fly planes. And she got her license and, and, and she was uh, licensed and she was uh, whatever the term is bonded to be able to fly in inclement weather. And, um, and she flew little private planes for a little while. And then she decided that other kids needed to learn about careers in aviation. So she started the Ida Van Smith Flight Clubs and, and went back to New York and, and got inner city kids involved in aviation. So yeah, like it's, it, there are stories out there and, and you don't have to be like, you know, the, you don't have to be like the super famous Rosa Parks of everything. Yeah. There, there are stories like this in our own families. You know, we just gotta talk to our folks and, and ask them what, when and how they did stuff. You know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, that's true. And I don't think that happens enough. Like right. I grew up in a Jewish household and a lot of my uh, relatives from, you know, a million years ago came <laughs> from Eastern Europe before the Second World War, I think. Right. Here before the war started. Okay. Okay. Something like that. Uh -huh. um, so my roots are in places like Latvia and Russia so, yeah, so a lot of the food that I grew up eating was like Yiddish sort of like traditional Jewish food, you know, and, you know, my grandfather, I think about like my grandfather who was, you know, who recently passed away in April, non-COVID related. Oh, okay. I'm um, sorry though. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, but he was a salesman his whole life. Like he worked, you know, he worked his entire mm -hmm. life. He built wow. this incredible family and, you know, it was one of the, like you said, you know, those are stories that I think about and I go, no more excuses. And we're <laughs> anything's possible. We can do anything if we set our mind to it and you're dedicated to it and you're passionate about it. Right. You know, there's, there's really something to be said for that. And um, right. I just think that's so beautiful. I really, really do. And, and I'm yeah. curious to sort of build off of this idea of, you know, reminding oneself that there are reasons to be hopeful and to look forward to your future. You know, I just graduated college recently. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And, it's, <laughs> you know, as you said, it's a weird time to be a college graduate and looking for a job because nobody's hiring because right. nobody can be in an office right now. Right. Um, and what kind of advice would you offer, particularly to young women who 
may have an idea to want to start their own business or be a creative person and do their own thing, but maybe they're a little afraid to or reluctant to. Um, mm. What kind of things would you would you tell them? You know, I think the best thing to do is to, for young women especially, to always say what you mean. Don't try to sugarcoat your language with, you know, cute language or emojis. Like <laughs> a lot of times um, we'll write, you know, in an email things that sort of like, hey, I was wondering if blah, 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 instead of saying, hey, I would like this to happen, you know, or I think A, B, and C, and let's discuss further, or, you know, be direct, don't be afraid to be direct, be, um, and, and, and say what you mean, and don't be afraid to take up room in a room, you know, a lot of times we shrink ourselves and, and try to make ourselves smaller, so, you know, people don't think we're too ambitious, or yeah. too, to this or to, uh, no, go in there and spread your feathers and be seen and be ambitious. It's not a bad word. Um, and 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 be, be the light you want people to see, you know, mm -hmm. all the time, you know, all the time, not just, you know, in the interview, but everywhere you go, yeah. you know, in, in Starbucks, in wherever, you know, walking down the street, just minding your business, be, exude the light that you want people to see all the time because you never really know when the the contact that you need is going to see you that's right you know yeah for sure and like that's so true because the thing about the music business at least or i were you know in the media side of, of the music business is it's controlled by brutally powerful white dudes and <laughs> that is problematic for everyone <laughs> right. Um, you know, I think this idea of rem that's a beautiful reminder that ambition is not a dirty word. It's not and a dirty word. It's it's OK to be like it's also OK to say no too. you yep. know, I think that's something my mom taught me really well is like it's OK if you're uncomfortable in a situation or you don't want to do something, tell them you don't want to do it. Right. That's something that I think is I, I will reiterate those words, you know, until I'm blue in the mouth. That is for yeah. damn sure. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the pandemic specifically because I think, you know, it's been hard to stay busy for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to know how you have navigated that challenge and um, if that has provided new ways of creating for you and what maybe that has produced in terms of stuff that you've made. I've definitely uh, embraced, you know, like the live stream medium, you know, uh, I, I didn't even hesitate. <laughs> I just, it was like March and I was like, all right, I'm gonna do a live stream show. <laughs> Probably, I, I, I think I did my first live stream show it was either late March or early April, you know? Um, and I, and I didn't even, making any money. I used, I raised money for an organization that I had been dying to work with for a long time. That was the, um, the uh, Thomas Pullen Art Center here in LA. Um, wait, Thomas Pullen? No, uh, shoot, I'm, I'm saying it wrong. The Pullen Center for the Arts, my goodness. I'm, I'm all over the place right now. And my dog is sitting at my feet and he's moving the, the equipment around. <laughs> 
um, the Pullum Center for the Arts here in South LA, I raised some money for them. And that was my jumpstart into the pandemic. And, and I'm so glad that I did it that way because it, it was really a way to sort of embrace, if that's the word, what was to come without embracing the dread that was with it, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, sort of and, get and to, in that headspace already. Yeah, to get myself in that headspace and, and to be able to give to a, a place that I wanted to give to for a long time and, and sort of give young musicians, you know, hope, like letting them know that they're not forgotten very early on. Um, that was a that was a good thing for my spirit, you know. Uh, and then I was able to start doing some collaborations with people that I hadn't been able to work with because I was always on the road. So my girl Rachel Eckroth and I did a song, yeah, and 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 a video, and and all of that was created in the you know the beginnings of the pandemic, you know. Um, and that was so much fun. You like it? It was so good to create with her because I'd been we'd been dying to kind of do something together, and we just never could. Yeah. Um, and and I, I, I got back with my um, other frequent collaborator. His name is Zoe. Uh, mm -hmm. And now we have a whole album we're about to probably release. Well, we got a couple more songs we need to write. But <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so that was that was good. And, and I got to do some session work for um, some some other TV stuff and, 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 and film stuff. Um, I don't want to say the names yet because I don't want to yeah. blow it out. But, you know, got to do that kind of thing. And then and then, like I said, I got to do more live stream shows. And my latest song, Feeling Good, came from me and Dominique Xavier just kind of vibing at one of my live stream shows, you know, and he was playing these chords and I just started saying birds flying high, you know how I feel. And I was like, dang, we should do that. And I had never even performed Feeling Good before. Mm -hmm. I had to type out the words and hang them on the mantle. So I would know it, you know, but we, but we kind of freestyled and jammed it and, and it turned out so good that people were like, y'all should record that, make it a single, release it. And so by the end of the year, you know, we, I was like, man, let's do this song. And he did the track and, and we released it. And just last week we shot a video for it and I'm super excited about it. Exciting. And, and, and all of this is stuff that I, I don't think I would have been able to do, you know, had the world not locked itself down, you know, yeah. with this virus. So I'm really excited about that kind of thing. I'm, I'm excited for us to all get, you know, vaccinated and get to the other side of this pandemic, but I'm, but I'm also really pleased to have been able to work with some of my friends in ways that I haven't, hadn't been able to work before, you know? Yeah, for sure. I think it's yeah. a blessing in disguise. I really do because there is so much to be said for, forcing a person to be mindful about things mm -hmm. and think outside the box. I think, um, you know, people have gotten really creative with how we make stuff, but it also is, you know, just, I guess, an exaltation of the beautiful, wonderful, crazy thing that technology has become, right? That we, right. Can, that we can do these things and, and that we yeah. can, that you, like, and make it even more participatory. You know, I feel like, you know, shows, if you want to call mm -hmm. them that, you know, are so much more interactive than they've been, you know, it's never going to be the same as when we're all together, for sure. There's nothing, nothing right. beats that. But there is something really beautiful about like, you know, getting on a Zoom or whatever and like watching yeah. somebody do do their thing. And um, 
I have a couple more questions for you, and uh, and I don't want to take up too much of your time, of course. Okay, uh, I was gonna say even when you said participatory, it, it made me yeah. think about the things that like like I was able sort of to participate in the inauguration in that um, the the celebrating America thing. Um, yeah. Demi Lovato did a lovely day, but I sang the demo for her. So everything she did was exactly what I recorded for the demo, you know? So it was, it was so cool to watch her sing that song and, and, and do exactly kind of what I did. And I was like, oh man, it, it feels like I'm right there. You know, like- What a so, good day that was. Yeah, it was such a good day, such a good day, <laughs> such a good day. But yeah, like the participatory element, you know, that you, that you brought up, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. 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 For sure. And I want to ask you too, because you mentioned the video for feeling good that's coming out. That's really exciting. Is there anything yeah. else that we should be excited about? Uh, that you um, have for us? Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't know when this podcast is going to air, but tonight I'm, I'm going to be um, on the first episode of a series called Solversations. That is the brainchild of Russell Taylor. It's going to um, stream live on my Facebook page and his Facebook page or solversations.com show and solversations is like s-o-u-l versations right um and if if you miss it tonight uh we're also going to air it again next week so this is a show uh created by an artist for artists and he is a brilliant singer songwriter in his own right but he's interviewing artists and and then they perform with a live band and we shot we shot this in my hometown in dc at the arc theater on in southeast so i'm I'm just really excited about that. Um, feeling good. The video will premiere probably on my birthday, which is February 18th. Um, so if anybody wants information about that, uh, the easiest thing to do, I guess, it would, would be to just go to like sysmith.com or, or follow me on Instagram at cyberspace, you know, to get that kind of information. Um, what else? I mentioned that Zoe and I will probably have something coming out in the summer. Uh, I think that's all for, oh, I'll be in Charlotte, North Carolina, doing some live shows wow. um, February 25th through the 27th at Middle Sea Jazz. And Middle Sea Jazz has done everything they can do to mitigate properly for the virus and provide you know a safe place to see um, live music. And I actually performed there back in August and mm -hmm. they, you know, they're doing everything right. You know, <laughs> even the merch table has plexiglass. It's weird, but you know, we gotta do what we gotta do. I, at least I get to, you know, perform in front of a, a live audience and, you know, meet people after the show. And, and if you're not in Charlotte, these shows are also available for live streaming. So um, folks can go to middlecjazz.com and get tickets for that. That's awesome. That's really exciting. Yeah. And I look forward to all of that. I have some rapid fire questions that I ask everybody. These okay. are always the, the fun ones. Sometimes some people say they're the hardest ones. Okay. They are definitely my favorite. Um, so what's the best concert you have seen as a fan in the last hmm. five or 10 years? Five or 10? Uh, uh, this was more than 10 years ago. Does it have to be five to 10? No, it could be any show that you've seen, the best concert you've seen as a fan. D'Angelo Voodoo Tour, House of Blues. <laughs> wow. <laughs> wow. With the, with, um, who played with him, if you don't mind me asking? Um, in that band, who was in that band? I just remember Anthony Hamilton and Shelby and 
JC, I think, were singing. Wow. Uh, Pino, Pino was playing. Um, who else? Because I, I think my man Kilo was doing sound. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, I don't know who else was playing. I just remember, or was, was James in that band? I don't even remember, but I, I remember the singers because I'm a singer. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what, I, yeah. What an experience. <laughs> I, that was a tour that I missed in 2015 or something, whenever the Black Messiah came out. That was one show that I missed, unfortunately, which I will oh. never forgive myself for. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is a new record that you love out right now? A new record that I love out right now. Um, let me see. What have I been? Oh, I love the Busta Rhymes album. I've been listening to that a lot lately. Um, what else? I don't know how new it is, but I love Cleo Soul's album. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I don't, yeah. I, yeah. I think that's, yeah, those are fairly new. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, what's your most memorable moment on stage? La, la, la. I think, oh, my most memorable moment on stage was uh, 2015 when I, was it 2015? Yeah. I uh, sang at Carnegie Hall. I did a tribute to Ella Fitzgerald and, and Billie Holiday and Sarah Vaughan and the women, great iconic women of jazz with the New York Pops Orchestra. Um, it was myself, uh, Montego Glover and Capetia Jenkins. And um, the New York Pops and Stephen Reinecke conducting. And um, just when I came out on stage, it wasn't even the show, it was re- rehearsal. Uh, that was my first time singing at Carnegie Hall as a solo you know, artist. Um, I can't describe how dope it was, but I can say this. My sheet music, um, my score that I used was had a, a Ella Fitzgerald's name in it because she used the exact same arrangement back then. So it still had her markings on it and everything. <laughs> it was wild. That's like a time machine type thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I do this thing um, sometimes where I, I take off my shoes to go out on stage just so I can feel the ground and, yeah. and kind of get the vibration of everybody who's ever performed on those stages and, mm-hmm. and, and just get grounded. And, and I did that. And it was just, it was just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's I do. Sorry, my dog made an appearance. Hello. That's okay. That's okay. Puppies are, are all all welcome. Um, <laughs> I do that at shows too, like in the crowd. I will yeah. take my shoes off and um and just stand there with my socks and feel. Oh wow. Yeah, feel the room just because yeah. I think there's something, you know, there's something really beautiful about being grounded with yep. being one with the earth in a moment like that. Yep, absolutely. Um, what's one book you've read? while surviving the pandemic? I'm still reading it. It's called, um, is it Black Wolf? Wait, Red, Red Tight, wait, I gotta, the title is so, uh, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm still reading it and it's long, Black Leopard Red Wolf by Morgan James. It's, it's crazy. It's like, it's, a, it's yeah, it's good. It's. It's, Morgan James is a, a brilliant writer and it's just the book is really 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 long though but I, it's good it's crazy it's, so, it's sort of like uh, in the same, same world as like a Game of Thrones type thing but set in Africa you know but fanta- fantasy you know world so it's lots of to add that to my list goblins and witches and you know 
tigers, the leopard that turns into a man, all kinds of things. It's crazy. <laughs> That's so cool. I'll have to add that to my list for sure. Yeah. I'm currently working my, reworking my way through Toni Morrison's collection. I went through all of her books once before in high school, but I decided to to re re go through them all and you know so I'm going through boxes and boxes of books trying to find all my Toni Morrison so that's been yeah that's good um she is one of my heroes um any new music coming out that you're excited about other than your own um I'm actually excited about Zoe he has a project coming out with tall black guy um so I'm excited about that Uh, who else uh, other than my own, Carmen Rogers has a project coming out next week. I'm excited about that for her. Uh, my boy Nicholas Ryan Gant also is working on a, a long overdue album, so I'm excited to hear that. Yeah, yeah I'm excited to hear those too. Um, and this is the <laughs> question I ask. I ask everybody this question: um, Why do you love to play music? I love to play music because it is the most liberated I ever feel like I just feel so free when I'm on stage and I feel so free when I'm you know I feel I feel really free when I'm in front of an audience to be honest um free to be my amplified self uh and it's it's really liberating yeah that's so beautiful well thank you so (laughs) much for sharing so much of your time with me and and with our audience It, it means so much to me and um you're welcome here anytime so thank you so thank you so much i enjoyed this conversation and and my my dog did too because apparently (laughs) he stayed here for the whole thing (laughs) 